recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogonia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, December December 22nd, 2012. Last night, we did a special segment of Christogonia in order to celebrate the failure of the so-called Mayan prophecy and time state and to pick on a few of the people who, um, well, especially one, who bought into that and who promoted that and who have been promoting it incessantly. One thing I wanted to talk about last night that I didn't really get the chance to talk about was this. A lot of the um, apologists for such actions, I believe or I perceive that they may try to promote the idea that something started, that a process began in 2012, which is going to change life as we know it. And just to head that off, I would like to say that um, there is no process. There is no single defining process this year which occurred, which hadn't been a continuation of earlier processes that began not last year or the year before, but a decade ago and two decades ago and, and, and a century ago. The same devils are still in charge. And Christians should await under God when he moves his hand to take vengeance against his enemies. Nothing's changed. And we await on our God. As Peter tells us in his first, or maybe it's his second epistle, that the scoffers, the scoffers doubt the coming of our God. Because all things have continued as they have been since the days of our fathers. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what Peter means. And they mock the idea of a second advent of Yahshua Christ and, and, and the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is the day that he takes vengeance upon all of his enemies and all of those who aren't of his sheep. So nothing's changed. There is no defining moment. There's nothing different about 2012 that we didn't have in 2011 and that we won't have in 2013. All those who attempt to... All all of the date setters, all of the date setters are basically antichrists because they look in the Bible at the words of Christ and think that they could do better. They're antichrists. Tonight, although we've been on a topic of National Socialism the past several weeks, and, and, and that was expedient, tonight we are going to return, at least for the time being, to our series against the Paul Bashers. And I have Sword Brethren with me to assist me with that. Hello, Brian. How are you? T- oh, thank you for having me on. I'm well. How are you today? Wonderful. Are you enjoying the world that hasn't ended? Am I enjoying the world that hasn't ended? Well, well, believe me, you know, I would pray that that these people were all right, and and that Yahshua Christ returned yesterday and and stamped out all of the scum and, and all of the filth and these Jew bastards who who abuse this society for themselves and and, and who um who have been persecuting Christians and, and persecuting and, and endeavoring to destroy our race for, for, 
55, no, I'm sorry, 75 centuries now at least. Right, but it doesn't happen. It happens on his date, not some date that some guy happens to pick out of a hat. Exactly, and not some date that some clown pulls out of some New Age Jew's rectum. Excuse my language, but that's the truth. It's incredible that, that, that supposed Christians would deny the scripture and have the effrontery to believe that they could do better. We are told that scoffers will come and they'll say, where's the promise of his coming? Yeah, I think that these people are essentially scoffers. And, and that's what, what, what I had just been trying to refer to. You paraphrased a little more accurately than I did, but it's basically the same thing. Okay, tonight it's Against the Paul Bashers, part five. Well, before we get into this, I think we should keep in mind, too, that Clay Douglas, he really has no theological background. He, he's not any sort of Bible scholar. As best I can tell, he's just some hardcore doper who's not even on board with the race message. And for one reason or another, he hooked up with someone claiming to be an identity pastor, and they wrote some stuff together. And I don't exactly know what Douglas's qualifications are. I still haven't been able to find out. Well, all right. But when, when um, I, I wasn't going to get into it too much tonight maybe, but you've just given me the opportunity. When, um, and it's in my opening notes, but only in part, right? So I'll go into it a little deeper. In the summer of 2005, while Clifton was preparing my open letter in response to H. Graber for publication in his Watchman's Teaching Letters, and that's the paper which we have recently presented in the first four parts of this series against the Paul Bashers. One of Clifton's readers sent him a couple of articles found in Clay Douglas's Free American News magazine, which, much like the trash that Graeber had produced, was written that the articles were written to attack and discredit the Apostle Paul of Tarsus. Now, the Douglas articles are a little craftier than the articles from Graeber. And the, the, the devices, the, the, the anti-Paul devices that we see in the Douglas articles are a little more cunning than the ones in Graeber. And, and these, what, what these do is it gives me the opportunity to exposit a whole lot of the facets of Paul's epistles, which would be difficult to exposit in this manner otherwise. So that's why I enjoy doing it. That's why I enjoyed writing this 20 teaching letters for Clifton is what, what, what this, um, that this included in total, and that's like 160 pages, right? Now, Clay Douglas, you know, these articles were published in the December 2003 and January 2004 issues of Clay Douglas's Free American News magazine. Now, it was initially perceived that they were written by Clay Douglas, who was the magazine's publisher. Since then, I have learned, and I've learned it from talking to Clay Douglas himself, that he did not write these. And you're right, Brian, he has no theological background whatsoever. However, he took credit for writing these. And someone else really wrote them while he published them under his name. Now... We're going to respond, and over the course of this series, we're going to reproduce these articles fully in, in this podcast, in this series of podcasts, 
in order that we can respond to them properly. And that, that's going to take a lot of segments of this program to do so. I don't know if it's going to be five or eight or nine or uh, how many. It, it's going to run for, for quite some time over the coming months. Um, now, as for who wrote these articles, after seeing some subsequent work from Clay Douglas and, and some of his – there was a third Paul Bashing article that I never addressed because it was published much later, and that Paul Bashing article had a name on it. And I don't – I'm pretty sure, but I'm not 100% certain, that the person that wrote these first two articles is a clown named David Owens who goes by the name Brother Nazariah and who fashions himself to be some sort of New Age Essene. And he promotes sexual promiscuity. He promotes race mixing. He promotes feminism. He promotes the feminist idea of the female aspect of God as well as the male aspect of God. He promotes the abominable gospel of Thomas and the idea that the Mary Magdalene was the, the wife of Jesus Christ, of Yahshua Christ, and he promotes the idea that Mary Magdalene was a, a negress, that she was an Ethiopian negress by race. Well, that's all heretical. And, oh, and he promotes vegetarianism and a whole lot of hippie, new age ideas, and many of them are just abominable. And I believe it's this Brother Nazariah clown that wrote these articles that Clayton Douglas then put his name on and, and published in his magazine. Now, I'm not 100% certain, but that's my best guess because I had um, spoken to Clay Douglas and, and – um, well, well, let's put it this way, and, and you might remember this. Back about two years – no, maybe – it was 2010, I, I think. It was 2010. So it was when Clay Douglas threatened us. Yeah, yeah, right. Clay Douglas threatened us. He threatened me. He was going to beat me up. Well, well first, I, I was sitting in, as a, um, a listener in uh, Eli James's then talk show Voice of Christian Israel program. And it was while I was still working with Eli, of course, because I haven't been in his program since we split. I was a listener in his program on, on a Sunday when, you know, we didn't regularly work together on Sundays unless I was filling in for him. Well, well um, Clay Douglas shows up in the forum, and, and so does John Waterman. And, and John Waterman's the clown we heard last night on the Waterman Files, who was the host of the program that Eli was on that, that I had replayed segments of from the Ellen and the Biru 2012 Mayan Prophecy. So He's the clown who said the whole Midwest was going to liquefy and we all need to move to the Ozarks. And, of course, that didn't happen. Well, well, Maybe he's the real estate agent in the Ozarks. Right, 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 exactly. Well, well Waterman and Douglas evidently were, were um, working together or close at the time or, or friends or something. And when I saw Clay Douglas in, um, in, in the chat room on TalkShoe, I, I jumped right on his ass, right? I jumped right on his ass about the Paul Bashing articles because it was the first time that I ever saw Clay Douglas, and, and it was the first time I had an opportunity to talk to him. So I jumped right on him about these Paul Bashing articles that he presented. And, and, and things got pretty nasty for a while in the chat on Eli's program, and um, 
uh, I was always blowing up Eli's chat rooms anyway. And, and um, Douglas ended up, that they actually ended up kind of changing their tune after arguing with me for a while. And Douglas invited me on his radio program, which was on Blog Talk. And the purpose of going on his radio program was supposedly to talk about polytarsis. When I got to his radio program a couple of weeks later and did the segment, I real and, and they're posted on Christogenia, I realized real quick that Douglas didn't know the first thing, not only about the Bible, or, or, or not only about polytarsis, but about the entire Bible. He didn't know anything. He didn't we we had a conversation. It was it it was a very um toilsome program it was boring it was long and and it was it wasn't long it was an hour or whatever but but it seemed like six hours because it 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 just grinded along because douglas really didn't know what to ask me what to talk to me about where to take me he really didn't know anything And, and i don't know why the first program was good compared to the second program the second program i thought was even worse and um well, well, we did those two programs together in split ways, and Clay Douglas, who, who had claimed under the wing of Eli James to, be, to, to have converted to Christian identity after doing those two programs with me and realizing that identity Christians were racists, he began to blaspheme and, and to curse identity Christians, and, and, and he threatened on a program that I wasn't on with him, he actually threat, he, he actually said that he would like to meet me someday so he could smack me around. Well, and, and that, he, I, I can't wait for that day. I can't wait to meet Clay Douglas. <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, if I recall correctly, he also said that he was in tight with the Hells Angels and he was going to tell them that we were evil racists, give them our addresses, and send them after us. Right. So, so I'm going to be pursued by a bunch of... Um, 300-pound bikers. <laughs> I'm not worried about that, believe me. Um, yeah, yeah. well, that's Clay Douglas, and that's his mentality, and that's where he's at. But he published these articles, and, and these articles, some of Clifton's readers back in 2005 thought, they thought that this was the, some of the, um, the, the most treacherous, they, they called it some of the best ball-bashing material out there, and, and um, I felt, and Clifton felt, that we had to address them. And so I did, and here they are. But they're not, even though Clay Douglas is going to get the credit for them, because he claimed they were his, and he published them in his name, he didn't write them, because the man, Clayton Douglas, is basically an idiot. And, and, and I'm serious about that. The man is not learned at all. And when you're not learned and you pretend to be learned in a certain topic, you're basically an idiot. I mean, I might be learned in a couple of topics, but I'm not going to pretend that I know something that I don't. And, and that's foolish. I'm not going to try to pass myself off as, as a sports statistician. I'm not going to try to pass myself off as an attorney or, or a medical doctor, or, or yet, you know, and Clayton Douglas is trying to pass himself off as a theologian and a Bible scholar, and, and he's a clown. So, so well, is there... it also merits mentioning that he seems to be very fond of drugs and narcotics, and his website, The Free American, it links to sites that sell drug paraphernalia and marijuana seeds. So he's clearly some sort of doper and I have to wonder if he's all there, if he's he's killed what few brain cells he you know, he had left. 
Well, well, right. I, I don't want to. I I really can't disparage people that want to make use of marijuana for medical purposes or for therapeutic puruses but yeah basically he's a doper yes that's true he's a I think, you know, he's living in some sort of dope fantasy and I, I don't want to get into too many anonymous but I'm just questioning his ability to think rationally because maybe he can pass himself off as a theologian when he's talking to people that don't really know the Bible but when he's in the company of genuine theologians and he's still trying to pass himself off as a theologian he should have thought that one through a bit better first. Well, well, Clayton Douglas is. Um, I've since learned that he's part Native American, Plains Indian, and and that he's mixed and he's not white, and that's why he hates racists. And and his idea of Christianity, it, it from what I've gathered, honestly, from the things that I've heard since our um, conversations it is that his idea of what a Christian should be is a beatnik, pot-smoking, hippie, dope-loving, Jesus freak who loves everybody and, and, now, and, and consorts with Negroes. And, and, and is, he at least, is, he at least is he at least 85% white? Well, well right. That, that's the Eli James witness test, right? Well, it's not good enough because in Christian identity, we should recognize the one-drop rule. And we shouldn't consider, you know, when it comes to the truth, we should not consider our personal situation because the truth is the truth, and the truth does not change to meet our, the, the requirements or, or, or the desires of our own personal situation. I've noticed, though, when it comes to the perverters of the word and those who would distort and twist the gospel, that eventually it comes out that they're X percent this or Y percent that. Well, well that's very often the truth. And, and it's unfortunate. Uh, I mean, if, 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 if I found out somehow, and, and I've been challenged on this. I've had people challenge me and say, well, what if you're a bastard? And I look at them and say, so how does that change the truth? If this is the truth, it, it's like the laws of physics, right? It, it, it can't change, and, and it's immutable. And I'm not going to distort what what is true to to um so so that I could pass and and get into the kingdom of God because I'm one percent this or fifteen percent that right I, I mean the truth is the truth and we can't change it because the truth belongs to God because He created us and He created the creation now now men have have bastardized it. And and created things that are false, and and things that are false cannot enter the, the kingdom of eternity. That that's just not possible because God only created what is good, and all bastards are bad. That's just the way it is. And and your personal situation cannot change that. Absolutely. Clay Douglas lays the foundation for a statement against Paul of Tarsus by criticizing the Jews as a race. That, that's what, and, and let me, oh, I, I'm sorry, I have to back up a little bit. Um, before addressing Douglas's, the, the actual Paul bashing articles that he printed, I'm responding to some of the statements made by Douglas in the Publishers' Corner section of his December 2003 Free American magazine, where he prepares his readers for his subsequent Paul bashing articles. Now, I'm not going to fully address Douglas's 
publisher's corner comments, but I will discuss some of his idiotic statements before we move on to his actual articles. Douglas lays the foundation for his statements against Polytarsus by criticizing the Jews as a race, where surely his intentions are good. Yet, I don't see much point in debating any of the Jews themselves on a topic, which is something that Douglas described doing in his magazine. Now, now it could be less frustrating and more productive to simply beat your head against the wall, right? Christ set a good example for us in this regard. And, and this, I talked about this last night on my, on, I'm sorry, my Luke chapter 23 presentation, right? The example Christ set for us in dealing with the Edomite Jews was that when the Edomite Jew Herod, and he was a king, right? Or, or I'm sorry, he was a tetrarch. When the Edomite Jew Herod questioned Christ at length concerning many things, as it says in Luke chapter 23, verse 9, Christ answered him nothing. Neither did Christ answer the Edomite high priests who questioned him, which is recorded in Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14. Why should we argue with the Jews concerning good and evil? It'll never get us anywhere. How could Jews, being evil, say anything good? Matthew 12, verse 34, offspring of vipers, these are the words of Christ. How are you able to speak good things being evil? Douglas goes on to refer to the fact that Judeo-Christianity is almost an oxymoron. They're Douglas's words. Douglas would have been correct if he had omitted the word almost. I'm going to quote, like I said, addressing the Paul bashers allows me to elucidate many things that I wouldn't normally get to point out, right? I'm going to quote Ignatius. He was a Christian bishop who wrote circa 110 AD. And Ignatius said in his epistles to the Magnesians, and we could find it, it's, there's a copy of Ignatius's epistles in the Lost Books of the Bible and the Forgotten Books of Eden, which is pretty obtainable, artisan publishers. Ignatius said, and I quote, it is absurd to name Jesus Christ and the Judaize. For the Christian religion did not embrace the Jewish, but the Jewish, the Christian. Ignatius, an early second century Christian bishop, understood that Judaism embraced the Hebrew Bible. It was an embrace of the Hebrew Bible by aliens, and they contorted and perverted and twisted it. But the Hebrew Bible was Christian. The Christian religion is the religion found in the Old Testament. It's Christianity before Christ. That's how Ignatius understood it in his epistle to the Magnesians. Surely Ignatius understood that the Old Testament religion of our, and when I say our, I mean the peoples descended from the nations of Israel, who today are mostly represented by Anglo-Saxons and German-Saxons and the Celts and the Scandinavians and the related peoples. The Old Testament religion of our fathers was nothing more or less than Christianity before Christ, and that Judaism it's a corrupted version of the Old Testament laws of Moses adopted by pretenders and charlatans claiming to be something they aren't. Now, the litmus test of the Apostle Paul should be whether or not he teaches and understands these things. 
whether or not he teaches, if we're identity Christians and we believe it, the litmus test of the Apostle Paul should be whether or not he teaches identity Christianity. And I would challenge any poll basher, any poll basher whatsoever listening to this podcast, and I hope Ralph Bagel and Jerry Kirk and, and some of those other clowns are listening, to come here to send me an email and we'll set a date and you come here and if you want an honest discussion about these things, I'm willing to have it and we could talk about these things. However, first I would advise that you go to Christagenia and you go to the front page and you scroll down to the bottom and, and you listen to a presentation I did at the Fellowship of God's Covenant People back in May of 2012, which demonstrates that Paul was the first Christian identity pastor. Paul was the first Christian identity minister because that's what he taught to all his assemblies, and it's evident in all of his epistles. Paul taught in Romans chapter 9 and in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which are poorly translated in the King James Version of the Bible. He taught that the people in Judea who were claiming to be Jews were imposters and charlatans. He taught us that they were Edomites, and we can prove that from the Old Testament, and we can prove it from history. Ryan, do you have any comments? Well, you wrote that... Um Douglas begins his attack on Paul by criticizing Jews as a race. Wouldn't the first step, though, to be he had to prove that Paul was actually racially a Jew? Well, I mean, well right. Start- but, but, but he, he um, yeah, you know, they take advantage of one line in the Acts where Paul says that he's a Jew because that's mistranslated. Paul actually right. said he was a Judean. Paul never said he was a Jew, and 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 they use that and and to 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 as their so-called proof or their alleged proof that Paul was a Jew, when in fact Paul was saying that he was a Judean, and when in other places he also said that he was of the tribe of Benjamin, and and, and several other things, and and basically, he, he um if he's of the tribe of Benjamin, how could he be a Jew? Uh, right. Get it. The history of the word Jew, it wouldn't have even been used at the time. So they're taking a mistranslation at face value, and they're starting from the premise that Paul must have been a Jew because the Jews teach that, mainstream teaches that. So we're going to start with that premise, and we're going to go from there. Well, well right. And, and in truth, in truth, today's Jews are a little more than Edomites and Canaanites, who race mixed, whom, whom a very small portion of the original tribe of Judah had race mixed with, but they're Edomites and Canaanites. Uh, I mean, if you're a Negro and you have one white great-great-grandfather, you're still a Negro. Unless you're in Brazil. Well, right, that's a possibility. (laughs) From this point, Douglas goes on to attack the position assumed by many mainstream sects that the Bible, as we have it, is infallible. And again, Douglas is pretty much on target in, in that. But, as we will see later, some of his reasoning is wrong. And, 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 like I said, this gives me the chance to discuss a lot of things, and here's one of them. I'm going to talk about the Bible as we have it. First, basically, there is nothing seriously wrong with 
many of the Greek manuscripts handed down to us through the ages, and, and they can be tracked through the ages, right? Copyist errors have occurred in many places, yet the vast majority of those errors are minor and of little consequence. They don't really affect Christian doctrine. In other places, in some manuscripts, synonyms were substituted and often only to replace archaic words with more common ones or because of preferred variations in regional dialect. Nearly all of these are of no consequence. In some manuscripts, difficult or poorly understood sentences were altered, and sometimes this presents a problem, but nowhere are the major tenets of the true Christian faith seriously challenged when the oldest, most reliable manuscripts are followed. More dangerously, some spurious additions were made in several places, especially in Mark and John, but many smaller ones in Luke, John's epistles, and elsewhere many of which made it into the King James Version and persist in more modern versions. Yet because many old manuscripts do not have most of these interpolations, and more so because archaeologists have more recently discovered many ancient papyri, which date from the 2nd through the 5th centuries, to which we can compare those copies of the ancient manuscripts handed down through the ages, the errors and additions made in texts can be detected for the most part, and they can be corrected or removed. The most glaring, the lengthiest examples of spurious additions to Scripture, I would say, in my opinion, are those in Mark chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, and John chapter 7:53 through chapter 8, verse 11. Yet, for one who studies at length and in depth, it is fully evident that the consistency of the word and the revelation of its prophecies are the best signs that, while not found today as perfect as in its original forms, the books of the Bible, except for the book of Esther, which I do not accept as canonical, I could prove that it's far from canonical, it's not, surely were the inspired word of our God, Yahweh, when they were written. Our biggest obstacle to understanding them is translation. And that all of the popular and published New Testament translations have been very poorly done, or at least contain a large quantity of serious errors, is highly demonstrable. And it is not only vague and subjective matters of exegesis that I would contend over, but also many issues of vocabulary and grammar things which aren't so fuzzily subjective. And my point in writing all that, my point in demonstrating all of that, is that it's not good enough. It's not good enough for a man who's criticizing any part of the Bible to simply say that the Bible as we have it is not infallible. If you want to criticize any part of the Bible as we have it, you have better studied it in depth, and you better understand all of the things that I just said about the manuscripts. And if you don't have a firm foundation for what your Bible is based on, because my Bible isn't the King James Bible, and I've said for years that my Bible isn't any one book. My New Testament isn't the Christogenian New Testament, even though I wrote it. I translated it. 
My New Testament, yes, the Christogenia New Testament, it, it represents my understanding of what the Greek texts say. But whenever I have a, um, a passage to look up in the Bible, I go right to the Greek. And I look at all the, all the variations, and I do that over and over again. I still do it today. Uh, I still do it today in my program preparation. I still do it because I could make a mistake or I could make a bad judgment call. Well, when whether one manuscript or another manuscript is correct boils down often to a judgment call. So what is the Bible? That, that has to be established first. But it's not enough to be a critic of any part of the Bible without taking a damn good look at, at what you consider the Bible to be and, 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 and giving it some serious study and, and, and understanding where these texts come from and, and what's happened to them along the way before you start criticizing them. And, and that's a lot of people just pick up the King James Bible, read it, and start criticizing it, and, and they have no idea what they're criticizing. I wonder, Bill, the evangelicals that swear the King James is the infallible word of God, well, was the word of God originally communicated in modern English? Did they never address that issue? The King James is only as good as the translators. Well, well absolutely. And, and, you know, the real, and, um, the, the real sad fact is that even... The Anglican Church, which produced the King James Version of the Bible, in the 17th century, wrote into their own Westminster Confession that any, um, that, that any disagreement or quarrel or contention over Scripture has to lead to the investigation of the original Greek and Hebrew. So they didn't see the King James Version of the Bible is infallible, and they're the ones that produced it. The problem with modern theologians is that for the last 400 years, layer upon layer of um, exegesis and interpretation from a mainstream point of view has led to the creation of many, many doctrines that if they start questioning parts of their translation, their doctrines begin to unwind and their entire religion falls apart. And that's why they have to deem the translation that they started with as infallible. It's not infallible in the eyes of God. It's infallible in their eyes because once they start questioning it, all their doctrines fall apart. That it, that's what Paul calls the systemization of deception that they have created. And, and this was evident, uh, I don't know if it was evident to my listeners, but it sure as hell was evident to me what, when I was talking to Don Spears about the Satan in heaven crap. He is such a, um, a, a proponent of the King James Version of the Bible. And one, one of the things that I pointed out was that um, he'll go and... and admit that the word um, ethnos should be nations rather than Gentiles. He'll admit that the word um, Ju- for Judeans in Greek should be, should, should be Judeans rather than Jews. And he'll stop there. He doesn't really want to go in, into all the bad translations in the King James and start correcting them because then 
his Baptist, even though he professes Christian identity, he has a lot of Baptist doctrines. And when you start correcting those translations, those Baptist doctrines start to fall apart. And that's what they're afraid of. So that's why they're King James-only advocates, because they've got 400 years of bullshit theology in their heads, and they don't want to have to empty it out. That's why you have King James-only advocates. That they're taking, and when these people find find the the truth of Christian identity, they still don't want to empty all that crap out of their heads, and they basically that they basically, as Christ said, they they take new wine and they pour it in old bottles, and they take new patches and they that they adhere it to old cloths, and and before you know it, everything's ripped up and destroyed. They can't stand. You can't, you can't stand in the truth un, unless you stand with an honest translation of the Scripture. No comment? Well, I think they're, they're fundamentalists in the sense that their translation, their chosen translation, they're very much sold on it, and they're not open to the possibility that their translation might be wrong because if they were open to that possibility, like you said, that would start to tear apart their doctrine. Absolutely. And their doctrine is what they're more interested in. Exactly. And, and they're not really interested in coming to an understanding of the truth or conducting an honest study. They already know what they want to conclude, so they have to get the translation that helps them to conclude that. Well, well, exactly. And, and men do that all the time, that, that, they, that they have a conclusion and they go in the Bible and look for support for the conclusion. As soon as they find it, they stop there. Right. Where if, if they read another paragraph, there might be a, an argument against their conclusion. Right. To his credit, and, and not everything not not everything Douglas says is wrong. It's just that his his um, execution to correcting it is is very wrong. To his credit, Douglas states that what I believe, while I believe that the Bible is a valuable historically accurate document, as accurate as is possible for something done by the hand of man, it is not for me the end all. And be all, it is to mind-molded Christians. I don't know where else you get your Christianity from, if not the Bible, I mean. This, if Bible intends the modern published edition, certainly is true. Yet the greater truths of the Christian faith surely can be revealed through a proper and thorough study of our ancient manuscripts together with history, prophecy, archaeology, and language. All five of those are important to arrive at a proper Christian understanding. Yet Douglas fails, where further on he states, there have been numerous translations from Aramaic to Greek to Latin to Hebrew and finally to English and back again. I don't get all that. <clears throat> well, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. When he says the Hebrew, if I'm not mistaken, biblical Hebrew is basically a dead language and modern Jew Hebrew we don't really have any translations based off of modern Jew Hebrew. Well, well, right. The Jews of today contend that Aramaic was the primary language of Judea. Well, I thought it would have been, you know, weren't they Hellenized, though? Well, well yes. They, were, they, were, they weren't all Hellenized, but they were Hellenized, and even the ones that weren't Hellenized, and, and a good number of them weren't really Hellenized, 
that they still knew Greek. They still understood Greek. Even Josephus read the classics in Greek before he learned to write Greek, and he had to learn to write it. I mean, you could read it. I mean, I could read Koine Greek, but but I don't know if I could sit and write an original letter in Koine Greek and, and have it be as understandable as it should be because writing a language from scratch is, is really something you really have to know how to speak it colloquially in order to write it. <laughs> Excuse me. I need a drink. To his credit, Douglas understands that the Bible is valuable and historically accurate. However, he has this false Jew idea that it was translated from <coughs> Aramaic to Latin to Greek to Latin to Hebrew to English and back again. And, and, and that's what, well, what the Jews would like you to believe. <coughs> the Jews of today contend that Aramaic was the primary language of Judea, and that the New Testament books, at least many of them, were somehow originally written in Aramaic. Now, both of those contentions are false. While it is apparent that most, if not nearly all, of the Judeans of the Roman period were bilingual. Greek was the primary language for many, but not for the majority. The inscriptions of the period the inscriptions, dug out of the ground inscriptions of 1st century B.C., 1st century A.D. Judea, demonstrate fully that Greek was widespread throughout Judea. Even the coins of Herod, the coins of Herod bore only Greek inscriptions. And even synagogues bore Greek inscriptions, Greek signs on their walls, where corresponding Aramaic or Hebrew inscriptions are not found. And I can cite evidence for that. I can cite Biblical Archaeology Review, the July-August 2003 edition on pages 25 and 36, prove my point. The consistency of all early Greek manuscripts, the internal textual evidence show that they were all, even the book of Matthew, even the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of John, even Paul's epistles to the Hebrews. Paul's epistle to the Hebrews was originally written in Greek. They all were. The providence, providence, which is the archaeological proof of age and, and, and um, setting, the providence of the earliest Aramaic manuscripts known shows that they were translated from Greek into Aramaic, contrary to the claims of today's Jews. The earliest Aramaic manuscripts known of the New Testament were translated from Greek into Aramaic. There's a discussion of this in the introduction to the Nestle Aland Novum Testamentum Grecque, the 27th edition, which I often refer to simply as the NA27, on pages 65 through 68 of the introduction. There's a discussion of that. And, and the proof that the earliest Aramaic manuscripts were translated from Greek to Aramaic. Aside from all of this, most of the Old Testament quotes found in the four Gospels and in Paul were taken from the Greek Old Testament. They were taken from the Septuagint. 
that most of them are just word for word from the Septuagint, and not from any Hebrew or Aramaic version, except that some quotes do more closely resemble translations from those versions. But they're a minority. The bottom line is that the entire New Testament was originally written in Greek. And that most of our ancient manuscripts and papyri, while they're not perfect, must be awfully close to the original accounts, to those original scriptures written by the apostles. Now Douglas tells again where he says that the Bible has been edited with many books left out of those writings. And, and he, he, he cites Thomas, the Gospel of Thomas, and he cites Enoch, and he says that they were banned from the sight of the masses. And he goes on to criticize the King James Version for that reason, and, and the making of the King James Version. And I have to say that first, and, and this is something that a lot of Christians take for granted when they hear about apocryphal books, but not all of the apocryphal or pseudepigraphal books, they're not all equal. They're called apocryphal or pseudepigraphal because they were omitted from canon for one reason or another. Most of them were omitted from canon at the Council of Nicaea in the 4th century AD. Not all of them are equal of worthy credit, or, or word, they're not all worthy of equal credit, I should say. Each of them has to be evaluated separately, and it would certainly be wise to do so before criticizing or promoting any of them. And these apocryphal books and these pseudepigraphal books, when they're evaluated separately, they have to be weighed not only against the, the, the period in which they were supposedly written, but they have to be weighed against the whole rest of Scripture. And if they conflict with Scripture, if they conflict, if the Gospel of Thomas conflicts with the other four Gospels, well, that's why it was eliminated. That's why it was accepted. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the Gospel of Thomas is significantly heretical in that it's a complete overthrow of everything in the Gospel. Well, yes, it is. So that there's no question that the Gospel of Thomas is not inspired, where a case could be made for Enoch being inspired. Well, well, right. The, the case for Enoch being inspired, be, being inspired, it is the fact that um, and, and I have to I have to qualify Enoch first, right? The book that we know is one Enoch. It's really four or five different books. It's four or five different books that were concatenated. They were all stuck into one book at an early time, okay? But not all of them are of antiquity, of great antiquity. They were written here and there and, and, and existed here and there at diverse times, and they were stuck together by later scribes and called one Enoch. That doesn't mean that all of those are original. All of those parts are original. And, and actually, there's books that, that, may, that are old and, and definitely not Enoch, such as the Book of Giants and, and the, Book of, um, the Book of Noah, what, which couldn't be Enoch because Enoch wouldn't have been there to write those things. I, I mean, they, they were written later. 
and and that's aside the point. So so what we know is one Enoch isn't all can't all be fairly attributed to to great antiquity. However, Jude quoted a certain section of one Enoch at length, and he alluded to several other sections. Peter alluded to and quoted portions of of what we know as one Enoch. Paul also alluded to or quoted portions of what we know as one Enoch. There's a whole list of quotes and allusions to one Enoch in the Nestle Landovum Testamentum Grece on pages 804 and 805 under a section entitled in Latin, Loki citate velalagati, which just means location of citations and allusions, right? And, and, and there's an entire section, and, and there's probably, off the top of my head, it's nearly 60 times that one Enoch was either quoted to or alluded to in, 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 the, um, in the New Testament. Now, there was a Greek version of one Enoch, and it's, of course, lost to time. We don't have it. And and there may have been a, a true Hebrew version. There was um, John Strugnall, who, who was a Harvard professor and one of the few men who had access to the Dead Sea Scrolls both before 1967 when the Jews closed them to the public and after 1993 when they opened them again to scholars in general. Well, well John Strugnall actually made the assertion after 1993 that there was and that he saw a complete Aramaic Enoch in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was before 1967, he claims to have seen it, and after 1993, he claims it is missing. And that would be nice to have. And and when he made that claim, he was branded an anti-Semite and thrown out of Israel, basically. Yes, that's what happened, basically. Anybody who states something that the Jews don't agree with or they find it being an inconvenient truth. Well, well right. So, so Enoch does have, it's, it, it's um, highly demonstrable that at least portions of one Enoch are canonical, should be canonical, should be considered canonical because the apostles, on multiple occasions, multiple apostles, quoted from or cited or, or alluded to portions of one Enoch. But the so-called Gospel of Thomas, along with certain other documents, discovered it. Nag Hammadi, okay? Nag Hammadi was, um, it's a place in, in the Egyptian desert. The Gospel of Thomas is nothing but one of those forgeries perpetrated by the Jewish sect of the Gnostics, which was originally based at Alexandria. They created many false Christian books in order to corrupt Christianity. They failed miserably in the second and third centuries. However, the Gnostics have had much more success deceiving people today, especially since the Nag Hammadi manuscripts have been located by archaeologists. Clowns such as the novelist Dan Brown have reaped millions of dollars by capitalizing on the deception perpetuating ancient blasphemies. The Gospel of Thomas is an ancient Jewish blasphemy. Haven't they been doing this all throughout the ages, though, with um, Schopenhauer, if you can't beat them, embrace them, with 
all these American Nazi groups that turn out, you know, like Frank Collins, born Frank Cohen. If you can't beat the enemy, pretend that you're him. Well, well, absolutely. That's an old, old trick. Yeah, you know, good or bad, whether it's good or bad, none of the apocryphal books were ever banned from the sight of the masses. That just didn't happen. It never happened. Rather, as we, what we also know has happened to, to a good many valuable history books, okay, how are books reproduced? I, 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 want, I want you to think about how are books reproduced. Well, back then, there would be somebody, a scribe or a monk or someone in a monastery, and he'd write it out painstakingly letter for letter by hand, and it might take a month to do a book. Well, well right, but you're only going to reproduce books that you're getting paid to reproduce, right? So it has to be in demand. Now, now if you're a church monk, if you're, if you're living at the expense of the community through the church, right? And and the church hierarchy wants you to reproduce certain books. You're going to reproduce them. But basically, that's your bread and butter, right? You're, you're getting paid one way or another to reproduce these books. Well, when Enoch was not included in the canon, the church simply stopped reproducing it. But it was never banned from the sight of the masses. It never was. And it's unfortunate that they stopped reproducing it. It is highly unfortunate because I would love to have the Greek one Enoch, and I know it existed, but it simply wasn't reproduced anymore, and because papyrus disintegrates over time, all of the copies were, that we know of or, or that we assume existed eventually fell to pieces, literally. Right, well, if there's some baron or some count and you're a scribe and he says, I want Plato, Aristotle, and Virgil. Well, you 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 copy what he's paying you to copy. You don't copy the the Gnostic gospel. Well, well, right, and that's exactly it with the profane books. The profane books, and when I say profane, I mean secular, right? The non the the non biblical books. The profane books were only copied for profit. They were only copied by scribes when the scribes knew that they could sell copies of them. So sadly. Many good history books that just weren't popular for one reason or another eventually disappeared because they were no longer copied. If I open up, um, when I read Strabo, I, I don't think I did it when I read Diodorus Siculus, but when I read Strabo, I actually copied, um, I made a list of every historian or geographer or, or other writer that he quoted or cited from. And I made that list inside the flyleaf in the front cover of each of the eight volumes in the, in the Loeb Classical Library edition. And, and some of those volumes have maybe 45, 50 writers that, that Strabo had um, quoted or cited from, and today their works are gone. We only know them through the people that quoted or cited them and and that may be in many cases only Strabo. That, that's the way it is. And, and all those works are gone. And, and the works that survived, we only have because scribes in ancient times found them commercially viable. If you're a scribe and, and you're selling books that you're going to write by hand, 
you're only going to copy books which you can sell. That's just the way it is. So Homer was always popular, and, and fortunately we have Homer today, and Diodorus Siculus, and Herodotus, and Thucydides, and, and, and the tragic poets. What, whatever we have today, we only have because in ancient times, scribes could make a living making copies. That's why we have them, somewhere so along the line. There's no conspiracy. And, and a lot of those, no, there's no conspiracy. And a lot of those books, we only have based on a few manuscripts, or sometimes one manuscript, what which scholars were, were, and archaeologists were lucky enough to find in some monastery or some library or, or some other source. A lot of the classics we have today we have only because of the preservation of one or a couple of manuscripts. So, so these Bible books that weren't approved by the Council of Nicaea, that they weren't banned from the sight of the masses, that they just stopped copying them because that they were no longer under a commission to copy them or they were no longer getting paid to copy them. It wasn't commercially practical. Right, it wasn't commercially practical or it wasn't ecclesiastically practical and approved. One reason or another, but they weren't banned. They stopped. A, a lot of books that, that Christians rejected with, with legitimate reason, like the Gospel of Thomas, nobody would copy. Who would copy it? Well, who would copy a book that was considered um, anathema and and the curse and 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 the lie? Who would copy? Right, but even if you wanted to ban a book back then, how would you go about it? I mean, other than making a religious edict against a book, if somebody were bound and determined to sit in the dark with by candlelight and copy a book by hand, you really can't control against that. Well, well, right. Well, at that time, even with the Council of Nicaea. There was no central ecclesiastical authority. Okay, the Council of Nicaea was in the early 4th century, but all those bishops, even though they all answered to the emperor, all those bishops at the Council of Nicaea were basically religiously independent Christian bishops. There was no pope. There was no pope until after the time of Justinian, which wasn't until the beginning of the 6th century. 200 years later. So, so with no central ecclesiastical authority, the, the bishops had a lot more latitude and they only answered to the emperor. The, the Gospel of Thomas was never banned from the sight of the masses. The Gospel of Thomas was understood as early as the time of Irenaeus in the second century to be a fraud. It was a fraud which the Jewish Gnostics at Alexandria attempted to perpetrate upon Christianity, and it failed, and it failed rightly, and it failed miserably. However, the Gnostics managed to bury some of these manuscripts in the desert at Nag Hammadi, and they were dug up 2000, well, 1,800 years later, 1,700 years later, and they, they became a success. They became a success that the the Jewish descendants of the Jewish Gnostics made them a success. 
that they're, to me, they're an archaeological curiosity, and that's where it ends. But they're not Christian documents. That, that they Genuine documents, such as the Dead Sea Scrolls, we're not going to be given access to those, are we? Those aren't our lock and key in Israel. Well, well, I mean, we, we scholars actually photographed all of the Dead Sea Scrolls with high-resolution photographs before 1967. And, and there are projects online to make those photographs available. The, the Dead Sea Scrolls had a lot of exposure before 1967. In 1967, during, I think it was the Six-Day War, when the Jews seized the West Bank, they seized the museum where the Dead Sea Scrolls were being studied by mostly American, British, and German scholars at the time. And when they seized it, they closed it off to all but a hand-picked selection of Jewish, um, I hate to use the word Jewish and scholar in the same phrase, right? Um, namely, Emmanuel Tav, I think, was what, one, one of the leading um, Jews with access to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And, and there were even many Jews excluded that, that actually um, were very resentful at that. One of them was Giza Vermes. Giza Vermes is a Jew who wasn't in the in crowd and couldn't get into the Dead Sea Scrolls for 25 years, and he wrote a couple of books whining about that. So, so he couldn't make money from the Dead Sea Scrolls, so he wrote books and made money whining about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, well I think it was 1992, actually, that the restrictions were lifted and, and that academics from outside of the little in crowd could actually get access to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And one of the academics who got access, who had access before 67 and, and regained it after 92 was John Strugnall. Uh, I mean, how many um, academics, you know, most people when they reach the professorial level are, are already advanced in years, I mean, at least 40 or 50. How many of them are, are going to still be working in 1992, who who were working in 1967? I I mean, probably less than five percent. Yeah, right. That's a long time span. So the the Jews reopened them to academics to to examine in in 92. However, by then they they had already um, I'm sure they had already uh, they had 25 years in in isolation with their own select group of um, epigraphers and archaeologists and, and so-called scholars to, to um, do whatever the heck they wanted with them, right? So that, that there are fragments of Enoch in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and there are many fragments, and, and I've cited them often in my papers. I would prefer in my papers to cite the Dead Sea Scrolls version than to cite the Ethiopic version. Do we ever know what that language sounded like when spoken? Well, which language is that? The, the language of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Well, well, the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of them are Aramaic, some of them are Hebrew, some of them are, are actually um, Greek. It, it's, uh, all right. well, well, all those dead languages. They're all dead languages. I, I mean, there are people who claim that these Turks in Greece today speak Greek, and, and, and I would protest that strongly. And um, e even though they use a lot of words that are Greek, it, it's the language has changed drastically 
since classical times. And, and the same thing with Aramaic, that there are some people who would claim that these Arabs in Syria and, and diverse other places are actually speaking Syriac, you know, are actually speaking Aramaic, and I would protest that. That they're speaking a bastardized version of it, just like the the, the Greeks are speaking a bastardized version of Greek. Right. It's, so the, the Hebrew the Jews have today, that's just a corruption of Aramaic then? Or but, well, the Jews Aramaic? don't speak Hebrew, and they never have. They speak Yiddish. It's not Hebrew. They, they get off saying it's Hebrew because they run the media. Because they own the media. It's not Hebrew, it's Yiddish. And the, you, you can't tell me that the... Um, yeah, you know, the, the, the Exodus is basically written as a, an epic poem, right? That there are several examples of epic poem, poetry in, in the Old Testament. And the Jews don't speak a language that's even amenable to epic poetry. I mean, that, that they're... That they're practice of enunciation is absolutely horrible. They spit, that, that they gargle, they, they do all kinds of strange things. I, I can't ever believe that the writer of the Psalms had spoken like that. No way. No, I, I consider Hebrew actually an Indo-European language, and, and I'm sure that it was probably pretty eloquent when spoken. And, and I, it's a dead language, correct? The, the Semitic languages are really Indo-European languages. I could argue that and win, and I'm sure I can. And um, they have all the features of Indo-European languages. There's no doubt. And the, the entire paradigm, the Jewish paradigm, which separates the Semitic languages from Indo-European languages is a false paradigm. And um, today, all those languages are bastardized because the because the people who um, claim them for their own, that they're not really speaking the original forms. The original forms are long dead. Right. Well, well, Douglas makes a huge mistake in, in criticizing, in, in, in his little preface, of criticizing the King James Version for not including books that were actually left out by the Council of Nicaea and lost to eternity 1,200 years beforehand, right? And it shows you that he really has no sense of history. The next part of um, Douglas's introduction states that he, he states that he personally has never felt the need or the desire to attend church. Something about the people there struck him as hypocritical and judgmental. Nor is he a dedicated Bible. He makes that admission. Nor am I a dedicated Bible scholar, he says. And he says that he believes a true knowledge of God is available for everyone, from within, not from tangled, mangled teachings of various sects. So, so he basically exposes himself there as having New Age egalitarian beliefs, right? Well, what would your Jewish origin? If, if they're getting ready to put you under for open heart surgery, the, the, the um, so-called surgeon comes in and he declares that he's not a dedicated surgeon, he doesn't know much about medicine, and that a true knowledge of medicine is available for everyone and it comes from within. And you don't need to go to any fancy medical school to learn about medicine. Right. And, and that's, yet, you know, first, for one who isn't a dedicated Bible scholar, and for one who obviously isn't a very good amateur historian, <laughs> confusing the... Um, 
creation of the King James Version of the Bible with events that happened 1,200 years beforehand at the Council of Nicaea, Douglas surely goes out on a limb because he is about to spend nearly 13 pages. His first article took cert- his first article bashing Paul took 13 pages of his publication. And he spent that slamming Paul of Tarsus with all sorts of false accusations amid many other poorly conceived ideas and accurate statements. Now, what sort of man would announce an ignorance of something? He announces an ignorance of the Bible. I'm not a dedicated Bible scholar. What sort of man would do that, especially with something so important as the Bible, and after admitting he's not a Bible scholar, then spend so much time tearing apart large parts of the Bible with strong criticisms? And, and, and I would think that only an idiot would do something like that, and, and that's Clayton Douglas. But these things, these things have to be addressed. He'd have to be either colossally ignorant, colossally arrogant, or he's so arrogant he doesn't realize just how ignorant he truly is. Well, well right. And, and in truth, Brother Nazariah wrote these articles. Clayton Douglas didn't. Clayton Douglas only took credit for them. And Clayton Douglas is not a dedicated Bible scholar, so he wasn't even he, – he was too ignorant to realize that the articles are just trash, but they're pretty cunning trash in a lot of ways, and they have to be addressed. Has the invitation ever been extended to this Brother Nazariah character? I don't even know if he if he's around still. I, I, I suppose that he is, because his name could be still be found associated with some of these Essene so-called churches. But no, I, I I don't take the time to chase down heretics and and hippies. Heretics and hippies aren't my cup of tea, and and he's and he's a hippie that's a heretic. So, well, well, Clayton Douglas, you know his his statement that um, God is available to everyone, that the true knowledge of God is available to everyone, is absolutely contrary to Scripture. And it shows that Clay Douglas is really a Jewish egalitarian. He, he's right, so, the Judeo-Christian universal mindset. And, and it's almost, beyond Judeo-Christian, it's the ecumenical universal mindset. Let me put it that way. So why would someone putting themselves forward as a CI pastor seek out Clay Douglas and establish a working relationship with him? Well, well... Douglas is a heretic to be avoided, not a potential comrade to be embraced. That, that's what Eli James did in 2010, and they even wrote a book together and, and marketed it. They wrote a book together and marketed the book together. And, and Eli James did have a working relationship with Clayton Douglas, even though Clay Douglas had published um, that these two, well, actually three, Long articles bashing Paul of Tarsus, even though Eli James claims to be a defender of Paul of Tarsus and has several papers defending Paul of Tarsus on his website, and I don't remember the subject of Paul of Tarsus ever coming up between Eli James and Clay Douglas in, in anything that I had seen them interact together with. 
So, so I don't understand why Eli would search him out and work with him without his retraction of these articles. I mean, we could make mistakes, but we have to recognize our mistakes. Right, but look at other comrades in this little clique of theirs. There's Arch Marxist Arlene Johnson, who I'm sure she would probably get along fine with Clay Douglas. They could hold hands, walk in the park, and smoke marijuana together. Right, and and reminisce about Angela Davis, Davis in UCLA, I'm sure. Well, well. Anyway, I, I I had written. I don't need to really repeat it here, but I had written a um, an exposition in in the original article I wrote answering Douglas's claim that that um, Christianity certainly isn't for everyone. Christ spoke in parables so that certain people wouldn't understand. The 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 the, um, the casual reader of the New Testament should notice these things. Christ said that there were people on earth whom he does not know, regardless of whether or not those people claim to believe him. And he said that in Matthew chapter 25, verse 12, it's recorded, and it's recorded again in Luke chapter 13, verses 24 through 28. Lord, Lord, have we not cast out demons and prophesied in your name? Get away from me, I never knew you. Christianity isn't the surface reader of Scripture should understand reading the Bible just once, that there are people here that God will deny knowing. For one reason or another, even if they don't understand that reason, it proves on itself, by itself, those passages prove that God isn't for everyone, that not everyone can have a true knowledge of God. The New Testament easily refutes that idea. Christ said he came only for the lost sheep of the house or family of Israel. And, and there's many scriptures that show that. Christ said, yeah, you know, God says you only, speaking to the children of Israel, have I known of all the families of the earth. Christ says that no one can know God unless the Son allows it. He says that in Matthew 11:27 and Luke 10:22. No one can come to the Father unless the Son permits it. Paul says in, um, in Hebrews 1.6 that all the messengers of God must worship Christ. Christ says that no one gets to the Father except through me. So if you're not a Christian, you'll never see God. And when I say Christian, I use the word in the racial covenant sense of the word. You, you can't, yeah, you know, the, the Bible itself dismisses all the false messengers of Islam, Hinduism, Judaism. Clayton Douglas is asserting that regardless of the Bible and regardless of your, of, of your religion, everybody, God is available for everyone from within. They're Clayton Douglas's words. A true knowledge of God is available for everyone from within. Yeah, yeah, well, everyone from within can manufacture their own God, but it's not Yahweh, the creator God. Well, you know, this sounds like the Marxist gospel of Jim Jones. I remember a direct quote from Jim Jones. He shouted to his followers, there's only one hope of glory, that's within you. No one's going to come down from the sky. There's no heaven up there. We'll have to make heaven down here. 
Well, well, right, and and, and that shows it, it shows the um, the mentality of Clayton Douglas it is basically the Jewish Marxist um, humanist egalitarian mentality, and, and he, he that's the mentality that he's bringing to his religion, bashing Polytarsus. The problem is that many identity Christians have bought this crap. They've bought these Paul bashing articles of Clay Douglas. They believe them. They quote them. They've carried them. And they should know better. And that's why a lot of this, that this garbage has to be addressed. But that is also why Clayton Douglas, when he encountered Eli James, they hit it off very well. They did a book together, um, and, and Clayton Douglas thought that he was Christian identity until he talked to me. And after he talked to me on two of his programs, he started blaspheming Christian identity and, and threatening identity Christians with violence because we were racists. So he was really fine with Eli James's version of Christian identity until he met me. And then he realized that we were evil Nazi racists. I guess Arlene Johnson was fine with identity when she knew Eli's version of it. Well, well, right. And 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 then we exposed her as a Marxist, and she disappeared for three years, or or two years. She crawled out of the woodwork since then. Well, well, I, I know they've had emails back and forth since then because I had the content of those emails posted on the Christiania forum. What were you? I told Arlene Johnson that he had to get rid of me because I'm a I'm a Nazi and I'm trying to Nazify CI. Yes, it was all lies. It's posted on the forum. That's very self-serving. Well, well, of course it is, but I, I don't want to make this program a continuation of last night. I, 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 right. It has to stand on its own. But yes, uh, and and Clay Douglas has to. Well, well <clears throat> yeah, you could see. Just from from watching that that relationship and how it dissolved, and and it, it's very obvious that through knowing only Eli James, Clayton Douglas had a very um, comfortable egalitarian view of Christian identity, and when he met me, he he realized that he had to make a left turn and steer out of Christian identity because he didn't belong. And anybody that doesn't believe those words should just go to Eli James or to Clayton Douglas and, and ask them what happened to their relationship and, and why Clayton Douglas embraced Christian identity and all of a sudden rejected it. And the information is all in Clay Douglas's own um, blog, blog talk podcast in 2010. So basically, Clay Douglas thought he had an invitation at a wedding feast he showed up and he, he learned that he didn't have an invitation. Well, well exactly, because Christian identists are, are suddenly evil, racist Nazis. Well, well, Douglas, you know, this error alone, and, 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 and by that I mean Douglas's universalism, should be enough to demonstrate that Douglas is not qualified to say much of anything concerning either the ancient history of the white race or 
of Christianity in the Bible. And his own words demonstrate that. Yet, we will do a full critique of Douglas's remarks concerning Paul of Tarsus. Not merely because Douglas made them, in fact, Douglas didn't, he's reprinting other people's words, but because, like Graeber, Douglas's remarks in his Paul bashing articles represent a great part of the trash scholarship and the blatant misconception being used in an attempt to further soil Christianity today. Little of it's new, but it's been echoed by Jews and Christ-haters for over 1,900 years. And like Graeber, it may also be evident that the primary sources for the trash that Douglas spews in his Paul-bashing articles are indeed Jewish sources. Paul-bashing has to be exposed as Jewish, and it will be exposed as Jewish. Because anti-Paulism, or Paul-bashing, is a Jewish conception. And if they succeed in getting Christians to disregard Paul, then Luke and Peter and Mark shall follow immediately. And then they'll set their sights on John. And in fact, many Jews have already begun a campaign from within Christianity against John. In the same manner, Jewish Gnostics in the second century took Matthew's gospel and shredded it. They called it the gospel to the Hebrews, and they disregarded the rest of what we call the New Testament. And to that, they began to add their forgeries and their fairy tales, such as the gospel of Thomas and the gospel of Mary Magdalene. Well, the, today's Paul bashers follow in their footsteps. With that, we will end this program, and that's the introduction to the next segment of Against the Paul Bashers. We'll be back next week, and next week we will begin addressing point by point Clayton Douglas's Paul Bashing articles. And the content of those articles is pretty appalling. And I would say, from an academic perspective, we don't really need to answer the accusations and the slanders, but because the content is so dangerous and it's a, I mean, it's possible effect. It has to be answered. Well, well, right, right, right. The arguments are, are very um, cunning. That the arguments against Paul are very cunning, and to somebody who is unlearned, unlearned, they are very enticing, and that's why I, I enjoyed writing this Paul Basher series for Clifton, because it gave me the opportunity to elucidate the truth of a lot of topics that otherwise, among Christians, would not come up. A lot of these topics, a lot of these arguments would never come up in a strictly Christian audience. And it gave me the chance to do a lot of that, so, so that's why I enjoyed writing them. Thank you for being here, Ryan, and praise Yahweh, and everybody who listened, I thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. See you next weekend. See you next week. Yahweh willing. God bless.